Hello, and welcome to episode number 17 of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Kords of the Dark Star Orchestra, and I hope you all are safe and well today. Well, after my little break, it's been great to get back into having conversations and producing episodes. Our last episode with Vince Herman was really well received, and there was some great feedback. So thank you all for that, and if you haven't had a chance, take a listen to it when you can. I've also been getting a lot of great feedback about my On the Road video series that is seen by my Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to see that and get much more content, you can get a monthly subscription uh, at themusicplaystheband.net. Just click on Patreon from the top banner, and uh, you'll get some videos. I made some great stuff at Red Rocks, and just uh, my diary from the road, if you will. I've got a great episode for you today. My feature conversation is with a, a great drummer who's playing I've long enjoyed. I'm talking about Aaron Comas from The Spin Doctors. Aaron's been a big fan of the dead for a long time, but is truly a student of all music and his instrument. He's a master of all styles, but he's still been heavily influenced by Billy and Mickey and the Grateful Dead. You know, the Spin Doctors were right there when what we call the jam band scene now, when that was first established in the 90s, and it was really cool to hear his perspective on how it all came to be. Also with me today is Josh Daniel, who has his own Grateful Dead band based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. And we continue with part three of my conversation with Master Luthier and co-designer of The Wall of Sound, Rick Turner. I want to thank you all again for being here and kindly ask you to please rate, like, and review the podcast wherever you may be listening. And let's get on with the show. Music Moment is brought to you by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead. Today, we honor Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke was born in Clarksdale, Mississippi in 1931 and moved to Chicago with his family in 1933. He began singing as a child and joined the Soul Stirrers as their lead singer in the early 50s and went on to pursue a solo career beginning in 1957. Cook's career was short but extremely prolific. It was only eight years long, but he released 29 singles that charted in the top 40 of the Billboard pop charts, as well as 20 singles in the top 10 of the Black Singles chart. This string of hits, mostly written by Cook himself, included many songs that are still well known today. You've got You Send Me, A Change Is Gonna Come, Wonderful World, Cupid, Chain Gang, Twistin' the Night Away, and the song we will hear today, Good Times. Cook was also among the first modern black performers and composers to attend to the business side of his career as well. He founded both a record label and a publishing company as an extension of his career as a singer and a songwriter. He also believed in social justice and took an active part in the civil rights movement. Unfortunately, Cook's life was cut short when he was shot at a hotel in Los Angeles at the age of 33, but his songs live on and he influenced many artists, both black and white. The Dead performed only one Cook tune, Good Times, and the Jerry Garcia Band also covered Wonderful World. Uh, Good Times, which is also known in Dead Circles as Let the Good Times Roll, didn't show up in the set lists until 1988, but it was played often after that and was almost exclusively a show opener. You know, it's a short tune with no jam, really, but it always kicked off the show with some feel-good vibes and got you ready for a great night. So here is Sam Cooke and the original version of Good Times. Yeah, come on and let the good time roll. We 
SMS Breakdown is brought to you by Sarno Music Solutions, producing the finest musical instrument audio gear designed and hand-built right here in St. Louis, Missouri since 2003, and Blue Jade Audio Mastering, St. Louis's primary audio mastering service since 1999. Today we're going to bring you part three of my conversation with master luthier and audio guru Rick Turner. We're going to move on from the guitar building segment and get right into the design of the wall of sound today. I want to move on from the guitars, if you don't mind. And, yeah. and, 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 and I'd like, let's talk a bit about your work in sound reinforcement with the dead, specifically the wall of sound. Now, it's just stuff. <laughs> it's just stuff. There you go. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That was Rick Turner. Um, <laughs> well, now, I, I've had Brad come on the show. You know, Brad's on my, he yeah. appears regularly and he sponsors this segment. And he's explained to the folks that are listening about the concept, you know, of each player having their own channel and their yeah, own tower right. speakers. And their individual control. But I got to ask you, since they already kind of know what it is, how in the world did you guys come up with this? Well, physics, it's all based on physics. And, uh, you know, Ron and I took um, a sound system design course uh, by this guy, Don Davis, SynodCon. And the SynodCon course reinforced a bunch of stuff that we, already were that we knew and were thinking and it introduced us to some new ways of thinking about it and measuring the results one of the keys was that for sound system design particularly for indoors there is this critical distance in a hall away from the stage and at that critical distance the reverberation of the room takes over from the direct sound of the sound system and you get mud. And so what you want to do is you want to push that critical distance as far to the back wall as you possibly can. You know, the ideal for sound systems is outdoors because you're only dealing with one reflective surface and that's the ground and the people on it. And that tends to dampen things a lot. You go indoors and you've got reflections from the back wall. You got that slap back. You got off of the side walls. You got off of the ceiling and you got off the back wall. And it all leads to a big, confusing bunch of mush. 
And ideally, a sound system would hit the audience only and never bounce off of any surfaces. So when you're designing a sound system, you want to design for maximum directivity, directing it to the audience. The other thing that you want to do is you want to get distance. You want to project. And ideally, you project without it being too loud up front and too weak way in back. Well, an RCA engineer named Harry Olson, uh, he did a whole bunch of, of studies. And then he got into um, the whole thing of uh, line array theory. And so the line array theory became the central focus of our work with the wall of sound. So that's really the precursor to the, to the line array. This is the original line well, array. That's a, the, the individual per person is kind of a separate issue from the line array theory itself. So the wall of sound wound up being, what is it, six or seven line arrays, essentially. Gotcha. That, okay. that okay. gets back to not wanting to, to mix the sound together and have them intermodulate and distort one another out of normal speaker cabinets, you know, a normal, uh, normal thing. The other thing is that Bear was adamantly opposed to what we think of as normal stereo. This thing was huge. It's a Herculean task what you're doing there. And yeah. It had to cost a small fortune. No, so did you guys fortune. just go to the band? <laughs> okay. So it had to cost a large fortune. So do you just go to the band and say, Hey, this is what we want to do. Can no, we have some money? No, it was funny because, um, the band decided that renting the sound system from us was costing too much money and it would cost them a lot less if they owned it. <laughs> well, they started playing larger and larger venues. And because we were the sound system guys, it was like, okay, what are we going to do? And, you know, and, and bear in 1969, I heard bear tell the band, the solution is to put the PA behind the band. Everybody thought he was out of his mind. It couldn't possibly work. Um, so we, the, the system starts getting bigger and bigger. We wind up 73, I don't know, Boston Music Hall. Um, I was on the road with him. Uh, we get to the Boston Music Hall and between the back line and the PA, there's no room for the PA. The stage wasn't wide enough. So it was, okay, bring in the scaffolding and put the PA up top. And that was the first, first gig um, where the PA went behind the band. And it worked. Wow. So it was happy accident yeah. almost. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. that was the memorable gig where, oh, this works. Anyway, so we, you know, we sold the system to the, to the, to the band. And it had to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it was like, okay, it works behind the band. Now let's go for it. We'd already started making columns of speakers taller and taller. And now it was like, okay, what are the wavelengths involved? Um, well, we got to go 40 feet tall for the, for the low end. And so, uh, because that would control the vertical dispersion and project the low end out. Um, 
one gig, uh, Santa Barbara gig, uh, Ron and I, we must have walked back between a quarter and a half a mile away from the stage. And it was clear as a bell. And then, you know, of course, the other big thing was that, you know, that vocals weren't mixed with instruments in the in in the speakers. So you had this clarity that has not been duplicated to this day. Uh, you know, right. Um, there were issues. Of course, there were issues. We're going to hear about those issues and a whole lot more about the Wall of Sound in our final installment of the Rick Turner Chronicles in my next episode coming out in two weeks. Today's edition of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town is brought to you by the Authenticity Academy, offering you online courses and private coaching. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in, or you've lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help www.authenticity.coach Today we head down to Charlotte, North Carolina to talk to Josh Daniel. Josh puts his own stamp on the music of the Grateful Dead by performing both as a solo artist and with his own band. All right, well, we're down in Charlotte, North Carolina today, and I'm talking to Josh Daniel. Hello there, my friend. Nice to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you, Rob. Thanks for having me on today. My pleasure. You know, I've had, I put out a a feeler a little while ago to get suggestions for uh, who to interview for this segment of the show. And I had more than a few, a few uh, listeners recommend that I interview you. So I'm, I'm happy to have you here. Uh, so you really get the best of both worlds with this stuff because you go out and you play full time, but you play this both as a, as a solo, I guess, with the looping thing. I do. Yeah. And with your own band. So can you kind of give me the short version of how you got started with this? Was it solo first and then the band? How, how did they all come to, come together yeah you know i just grew up playing in bands my whole life i just i love music i'm a huge fan i'm a huge uh just consumer of just all types of music you know of course love the grateful dead um you know but i you know how it is sometimes it's it's hard to it's hard to deal with full bands of of people (laughs) and get in the van and roll so you know i started kind of i don't know 10 15 years ago just really honing in on the solo thing and and having fun with it you know um doing the loops on the fly using different effects and uh, just making it sound really full and kind of just uh, improvising with myself in a way. Um, and so I would say, you know, I'm, I'm probably 80% solo at this point and, and 20% I play with other people. I really love playing solo, obviously love playing with, with folks too. And so, um, you know, I've been in a couple bands and and some of those had kind of dissolved and I was out doing the solo thing and, and, you know, just love playing Grateful Dead music. And, um, you know, that kind of started, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, we started kind of doing a Grateful Dead holiday thing, like once a year, you know, around Christmas and TC lives here in Charlotte. And so we'd get him on keys sometimes. And some of the guys from the mantras, it was kind of a super group of, of sorts. And then, uh, you know, I just felt like, you know, I'd like to do this more often than just once a year. So I kind of put together, you know, a group of players and, we go out and do, you know, full Grateful Dead shows, um, you know, a couple times a month. And then, you know, that's kind of expanded. And now, you know, we're doing uh, full original shows as well. And I'm, I'm doing uh, solo shows all the time as well. And, uh, you know, just keeping the music, just keeping the music going. It was, it was pretty wild during the, during the quarantine when, uh, when my county, Mecklenburg County, shut down back in March of uh, 2020. 
I went on and I mean, all the gigs were gone, you know, right. and that, that first week I said, my wife, I said to my wife, I mean, they just got canceled one after another, you know, and I was, I was looking at a really busy year and I said, I don't know what we're going to do, but I've got to play music. And I, you know, I've got some, some fans online and they buy my merch and they tip me. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go live every day during the, during the shutdown. Yeah. I saw that. How many, how many consecutive days did you do that? I did 365. You did it for a solid year every day. I did two hours a day. Yes. That is amazing. Um, it was insane is what it was. <laughs> I should, you should interview my wife is really who I should have on here because she's like, first of all, I mean, I didn't think I'd make a hundred days. I made it to a hundred. And then she, she said, you're going to go the whole year. Aren't you? I was like, no way. I was like, I can't do it. I was like, but I'll keep going as long as I can. You know, people are egging me on. They're enjoying it. Really. That's, that's man. That's so impressive. When, when and, you do it as the Josh Daniel band. Um, yeah. What's the instrumentation there? So we have uh, two guitars, bass, keys, drums. So you got the you whole know, lineup right on the class, the classic lineup, you know, of, uh, of, of everything you need. So um, how, how, how often both solo and I mean, you're making a career, you're making a living as, yeah. as a musician, both solo and with the band, how often do you play out in total? Um, five, you know, about five days a week, five days a week. Wow. Man. Yeah. Four or five days. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you take it out of Charlotte. You hit the road quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I was just in uh, Atlanta and I was in Myrtle Beach and Wilmington this past weekend. This weekend I'll be in at Floyd Fest and then I go up to Washington, D.C. and then back to Floyd Fest for another set. So, um, yeah, I'm all over the place. I was out in Colorado last week as well. Got to catch. Uh, it was it was interesting. I kind of I had a couple of days off and I, and I saw that that Red Rocks show with with Billy and, and the kids. It was so, so good. I, I watched the dude, video. It was great, man. I, so I flew out there and, and I ended up setting up a couple of shows for myself and they really went really well. I couldn't believe it. I, I, I had about 70 people out on, on uh, a pre-show that I announced three days before and they were out there with my shirts and the hats and just, you know, and it's, it's just so good to be out of this COVID mess. Everybody's just ready to hug and, and tell you that, that, you know, we're out of this thing. Thank you for helping me through it. It's just been really touching. Um, just getting back, you know, it's, it's hard to be away from, from folks that long, you know, yeah, it is when, when you're looping it, do you all, do you start with a baseline? Do you lay that down first? Or you just lay down your rhythm track first when you're doing, I mean, you're looping live. Yeah. So how do you, how do you start? How do you lay your, your groundwork? So I typically do two different, or there's kind of like two different ways that I do things. Um, usually I, usually I start with the rhythm, the rhythm track. And if, and if, you know, it's, it's a song where it's pretty basic and the, and the, the verses are kind of all the same. I'll, I'll start there. I watched, I watched eyes of the world video okay. of you the other day. Yeah. Yeah. So eyes of the world, what I do is I, um, I start out with that, with the jam part. And then I, I, I loop that and I put a baseline over that. But then when I go to the verse, I cut the loop. I, I, I stop the loop. I sing the song, the whole verse and chorus. Then I click the loop back on for the in-betweens. And then I, that's, where, that's where the improvisation will be. And that's kind of where the jam is. Because, right. I, I mean, you could go a different route with that. But I want to be able to, like, jam as long or as short as I want to. And, and, and with the band, is, do you... Just do you guys have a specific approach? You know, let's just go out and play these tunes, man. I'll tell you, we 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 call it while we go. We 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 don't really we typically don't make a set. We have kind of like a, a rough 
set lists, you know, in in mind or some songs that we're going to play. But they're like, we get into the jams and then we just start calling them there. Awesome. So it's really fun. I'll tell you one that I did the other night that was really fun. We came out, we did, we started with Shakedown. Then we brought it down. We had that, you know, because it's in C, we brought it to the wheel right out of Shakedown. Nice. Into the wheel because it's in C. And then we, then we went into, that's what love will make you do. Cause that's in C too. And then we brought it back to the shakedown, you know, end of shakedown. So right that's on, a good, I mean, that's half a set right there. And it was, it was really fun. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, um, in, in, I know you travel around, but you're based out of Charlotte and we, I yeah. know, I know North Carolina rocks for us, whether it's Charlotte or Asheville oh, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, North Carolina is so good for the jam band the grateful Dead community. Um, kind of expand on your scene. Tell me a little bit more about the scene in, in and around Charlotte. Yeah, man, it's it's come a long way. I grew up here, and I, so I've 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 been around Charlotte my whole life. I'm I'm 42 years old, um, and I've I've been going to shows here. And I'll tell you right now, I mean, it is more exciting now than it's ever been. There's more venues, there's more spots, there's more people out that are like minded like us, ready to roll. And I mean, we I mean, we can see we we see world class music. I tell people this isn't New York or LA where it's like every night you got to pick. But we see world class music every single week, multiple times. I mean, it's it's awesome. Um, you know, every I mean, I, I've had so much, you know, I've had really good luck, you know, just putting up free, you know, outdoor free shows and just having hundreds and hundreds of people show up. Um, you know, it's it's been great. I can't, I, you know, I love being in North Carolina, and then it's also I can travel to Atlanta and I can travel to you know the beach and you know I mean it's it's a good starting point for travel. I get a different answer about this to this question from everybody. So I'm interested to hear yours. What is it? What is it about this music that you think creates this subculture in this community? Man, it's, it's just, it's so special. It's, you know, it's just, it's the, it's the community. It's part of it is the community for sure. And that, and that's what I'm, you know, even with what I've got going on with, with uh, what I called the quarantine sessions, which was everyday people getting together and, and sharing, you know, sharing that time together. And that, that makes it just, it's bigger than the band. I mean, we realize this now 50 something years into the grateful dead that, the, you know, 500 years from now, this will still be going. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, if the earth is still here, <laughs> which is questionable at this point, <laughs> but yeah, if it is, the music will be around. Right. But it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I want to say, you know, it's just, it's, it's a special, it's touched by God, you know, it's touched by the divine, you know, it really is. And it's, and it gets the more I dig into it, I, I start to realize that these these lyrics and, and 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 just the personality that comes through in the playing of different players. I mean, of course, I mean, I always just say, you know, to people, I mean, Jerry was magic to me. I mean, I, I mean, it's like everything he touched was just incredible. I mean, every you know, the acoustic, the electric, his covers, his his you could hear his heart coming through his playing and his singing, you know, even when he wasn't feeling good or doing good, it was still there's still right. glimmers of magic every single time, you know, and that's just a special thing. And it lives on beyond, you know, beyond someone's life. And it's, it's just an amazing thing. And I think, you know, the other thing, uh, Robert Hunter, I mean, these lyrics are, are on, on par with, with things that you read and, 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 you know, song, of so you know, song of Solomon and things like that. I mean, I, I look at amazing grace and, and ripple as a, you know, very similar thing. <laughs> Yeah, man, you that's know, what did it, it for me was it, it was the lyrics, you know, I mean, as, as yeah. good as everything else is and as amazing and important as everything else is the lyrics. When I was learning about the Grateful Dead became 
especially Hunter's lyrics, became words to live by. Well, man, I, I appreciate what you're doing. It's really cool Thank to you. see you being able to do the solo and the band thing. and and doing everything you can to keep this music getting out there to the people. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for sharing uh, sharing some time with me this morning and letting me know about your community yeah. down there, man. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed, you know, listening to your podcast uh, in the past <laughs> before I met you and, and seeing you guys and hope to see you maybe this summer at some point. Yeah, for sure, man. I'd love to meet in person. So uh, yeah, hopefully that will happen. In the meantime, while you're working out there and starting to travel, stay safe, be careful and enjoy it. Absolutely. All right, folks, that is from Charlotte, North Carolina. That is Josh Daniel. Check him out. What a great guy who takes a really cool approach to the music. I should also mention that during his 365 consecutive days of streaming, he raised over $50,000 for his local food bank and children's hospitals. So, great job, great cause, much respect to Josh. If you like what you're hearing today and would like to support the podcast, we have two different ways for you to do that. You can make a one-time contribution via PayPal, or become a patron with a monthly subscription that includes the On the Road videos that I spoke about earlier, also has expanded video versions of all my segments and the outtakes that don't make it onto the podcast. There's some community hang time, some old DSO footage, a whole lot more. Uh, you can support the cause, learn more about the podcast and my sponsors, who I could not do this without. You can read my blog or contact me through our website at www.themusicplaystheband.net. I should also mention that a portion of all the proceeds will be donated to the Rex Foundation. And if you have the time, please like, rate, and review the podcast on whatever podcast player you might use. Thank you for your continued support and for helping spread the word about the podcast. Our feature conversation is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. On Shakedown or online, go to Grateful Sweats for subtle dead designs. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy and see for yourself. Designs only other heads will get. When you're wearing the state of Tennessee with Jed in the middle of it and someone says nice shirt, you know they're on the bus. That cap with a single finger in the air makes its point, and you can look great on tour with men's and ladies' tees and tanks, caps, pins, and clearance items as low as $5. Get them at www.etsy.com shop slash grateful sweats, or you can click from our sponsors link at my website, themusicplaystheband.net. Really excited to have this guest today. It's Aaron Comis, the drummer from The Spin Doctors. Uh, when the spins gained popularity during the emergence of the jam band scene in the early 90s, I was an instant fan of Aaron's drumming. He's just got a great groove and does some really dynamic stuff. Uh, we'd only met once before this, so it was a real treat to have this conversation with him. Now, he spends his time playing all styles, and he's got a really busy schedule playing with the Spin Doctors and Joan Osborne, his own jazz group that just put out an album, tons of studio work. Uh, but he still holds the dead near and dear to his heart as one of his earliest influences. So this was a great conversation to hear about that. Okay, welcome everybody. Hello, I'm here today with Aaron Comis, the drummer from the Spin Doctors and much, much more. How are you, my friend? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me, man. Man, my pleasure. I'm, I'm really glad you took the time and took us a little while to hook up because he's got a lot of irons in the fire and he's a busy man. So I appreciate him taking the time. You're home in New York City right now? I'm home right now in New York City, yes. How did, uh, how'd you do getting through this crazy uh, pandemic we just dealt with? Well, you know, like everybody, it was a trip and I, you know, we all spent way too much at home and it's, and it's, uh, too much time at home and it's nice to be getting back out in the world again, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. Did you, uh, 
you, you've, you've, you've been back out now. You've played a few gigs. Yeah, I have. Uh, in fact, the spin doctors just had our first show, uh, on the 4th of July in Vermont. And that was great. And I've done some other shows, uh, here in town. Like I have my own group. So we did a show over at the Rockwood a few weeks ago and I've done a few shows with Joan Osborne. I'm going actually flying out to Denver on Friday to play a gig with her. So yeah, it's, it's starting to get busy again. You know, it's funny how like, I think for all of us just six weeks ago or two months ago, we weren't really sure we we're going to be doing anything this year. Yeah. And, uh, and then all of a sudden it was like, okay, we're, it's happening. Which So it, you know, it's a relief, you know, and um, the, the agents are going crazy because they usually book six, six to eight months out. Now they're booking like six to eight weeks out. Exactly. I mean, we had, we had, we had all the shows that the spin doctors had last summer, you know, or at least the shows we had on the books by like when everything got canceled, um, a good amount of those got pushed to 2022. But, you know, we didn't know if that were going to happen or not. Everything was sort of like to be determined, you know. And uh, but fortunately, they're all happening. And like you said, now that it's open, the agents are just trying to scramble and get as much stuff as they can. So it's pretty funny. There's a million shows coming up and being announced every day. It's crazy it's now. Hilarious. I know, but it's great. <laughs> it's, it's so nice to see everybody back out there. And, you know, I'm sure as you probably experienced uh, with these first couple shows, it's like, it's amazing the reaction, how happy people are to come out and be at a live show and hear music. And, you know, it, you know, hopefully that'll continue and people will like hold on to that feeling. I mean, people always love music, but you know what I mean? There's like something really special right now that I think people didn't really just kind of took it for granted their whole lives, you know? And, I think you're right. And then they got yeah. stuck with couch tour and all these virtual yeah. gigs for a I year. Mean, and, and now they're back out with the energy and I don't think they take it so much for granted anymore. Yeah. So that, that's been really great, you know? Right on. Um, you grew up in Dallas, Texas, right? Yes, I did. Can you tell me, tell us, Tell us a little bit about how you got started, your musical upbringing down in Dallas. Well, Dallas was great, man. It was a really, really, I feel really lucky to have grown up there for a bunch of different reasons. And I'll quickly tell you why. I mean, like, you know, just the, for one, I had an incredible uh, drum teacher from from day one. I just sort of lucked out and got this guy named Jack Iden. I was nine years old and I told my parents I wanted some drum lessons. And they called the local music store, Brook Maze. And this guy, Jack Iden, you know, uh, was just fantastic. And he's the reason why I hold my drumsticks traditional grip. Because on day one, he showed me how to play the hold the drumsticks. And that's how he taught me. And I spent my first couple of years just on a practice pad and a snare drum, just working on rudiments and reading. I didn't even have a drum kit. He wouldn't let me get a drum kit, you know? Right? I I mean, you, you were the same way? Same look, man. Yeah, I mean, we hated it then, but we, we, aren't you glad that we were forced to do that? Yes, and then it was like a big deal when I was allowed to have a bass drum. Exactly. Yeah, but same thing, you know, the books are still on the shelf over there, man. There you go. So I'm real grateful for that. And then and after I just had a whole bunch of really good private teachers. And also at the time, there was a really good uh, music program in the schools there. So I was doing like, you know, jazz band from junior high school all the way through high school. And then the really big thing that was so great was I was I went to a performing arts high school in Dallas called the Arts Magnet High School. Right, right. And uh, there were so many great musicians came through there. And, you know, so every day I was playing in a jazz combo and a big band, symphonic band. And then at night, you know, we would be jamming with all the all the people after school. We'd get together and jam and and do our thing. And um, and there was also just a really cool scene in Dallas. So I was playing all kinds of different gigs from jazz to blues to original bands. And um, 
it, it was just great, man. You know, and you know, I, I kind of got my first little taste of like, you know, there was this, there was a, there's an area in Dallas called Deep Elm. And in the 80s, there was a really, really great original music scene there. And some really good friends of mine who are a few years older than me that also went to the Artist Magnet High School was uh, the New Bohemians. Eating yeah, man, I was going to ask you that because I had Kenny on a couple weeks ago. Kenny, so, yeah. So, yeah. so you know, like guys like Kenny, who was a couple years older than me, um, you know, we would jam all the time. We had this little group of friends. We called ourselves the Munch Puppies. And we would just jam, you know, we were and we were all really into like Miles Davis and we all got really into the Grateful Dead and we would just do these all night jams and it was incredible. And, you know, and then and they had their scene, which was a real sort of deadhead hippie jam scene in Dallas. And it was just a, a really, really creative time down there. And for me, it was like I was still in high school. And I was sort of you know hanging in this scene. And it, it was it was really a really nice way to, you know, to grow up and then ultimately move to move into New York City and get into what I got into. But the I mean, I'm really grateful for that. Those years in Texas and Dallas. Hanging out with, with Kenny and Edie and all those guys from the high school. Do you remember when you first heard the dead? I do. Um, the first time I remember getting I mean, I'd heard of the dead, but I really never knew much of the music. I mean, I'd heard trucking, you know, whatever. But I think I was like a sophomore in high school. And one of my friends, see, I have an older brother. My older brother's three years older. And he was, he was in the same class as Kenny Withrow and, and a lot of those guys. And then there was an, another guy named Kenny Stern, who was a really good drummer down there. And Kenny was like the deadhead. He was like the dude that was into the dead. He sort of turned all of us on to the dead, including like Kenny Withrow, you know, cause we, me and like Kenny, like we, that horror whole scene, we started off, we were really into, we were always into like improvisation. And we were, I remember being really into like all of us being really into King Crimson, like those records, Discipline and Frank Zappa and, and, um, stuff like that. And Miles Davis, we loved Miles, you know, right. that period of Miles, you know, like my, um, you know, Man with a Horn and all that stuff. And it was real, you know, Jean Pierre. We, we would play Jean Pierre for like three hours, you know. <laughs> and just stretch out. But um, this guy, Kenny Stern, was really into the dead. And I remember we were he was living in Denton at the time. He was going to North Texas. And um, I was he was a few years older than me. And we were we were friends. And we went to Denton up to his house and dropped acid and listened to Anthem of the Sun. Right on. And he was like, you got to check this out, man. This is like the perfect album to peak to, you know, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I'm not, you know, I shouldn't be saying this, but whatever. It's a podcast. We're allowed to say whatever the fuck we want. Exactly. You know, hopefully my mom's not listening, you know, my mom listens and I cuss anyway. It's <laughs> but, but, but basically that was my first experience with the dead was peaking to Anthem of the Sun, you know, great record. I mean, incredible record. And so then from there, you know, I, I that was when I, when I was like, wow, these guys, this is awesome. You know? And uh, what also, was it? What was it that grabbed you when you heard that? Well, for one, I, you know, you're, you're peaking, you're tripping hard. So it was like there's that there's that thing that kind of like made it memorable. But I just remember the music. I mean, I think something something about the dead and something about Jerry's Garcia's guitar playing is he had this weird, weird way of sort of like bringing everything back to sanity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he could sort of sober you up with his guitar. Right. You know. That's awesome. <laughs> I always thought I always thought that about him though, you know. But, you know, I just remember thinking like cuz really coming from like 
a, a big jazz background and also being really into like, you know, all the classic rock shit. I mean, I grew up with Zeppelin and The Who and The Beatles and ACDC and Rush and, you know, all the I'm sure the same stuff that you we all were listening to the same stuff. Right. You know? yeah. If you grew up in that era, that was the shit, you know. But I was also really into improvisational music, being into jazz. So when I heard The Dead, I was like, wow, these guys really are like doing something. I've never really heard of a rock band do it like this before. And, you know, and then once I started discovering, you know, my friend had a big thing of bootlegs, all these cassette tapes he was he was getting. And once we started listening to those, you know, obviously Anthem of the Sun was a very early record and it, and it it, they, their sound morphed a lot as because we're already we're talking like 1984 now, you know. Right. So you know, so we're we're listening to all these bootlegs from the 60s all the way to 84, you know, through the 70s, and I really learned all those different periods and um, just loved. I mean, they, the Dead, you know, they they really create they just created their own sort of style of music, you know, they really did. And it's it, I always find it was so interesting how people either really got it and loved it or people just hated it. And and that goes for musicians. I mean, like, you know, I, I mean not growing up a serious musician like I am and playing with really serious musicians, like some of some of them just really got it and loved them and others would just be like, this is the worst shit I've ever heard. You yeah. know, it's interesting. It's interesting how how people's reaction was so extreme, you know, and yeah, and it's also interesting, I think. And as time went by, like even like when we got into the '90s, like when the Spin Doctors first came out, and you know, there was sort of that new scene of you know the Horde and all that. There was still this sort of world of like, well, you know, the jam stuff is if you're into it, you're into it. But if you're like more into like the alternative, like that jam shit's not very cool. There was right. still this sort of like the dead, they're not cool. But if you're into the dead, you're into the dead. And it's what I really find fascinating is how now here we are like 30 years later and everybody thinks like the dead is cool. Everybody's into the dead's music. You know, you have bands like yourself that are extremely successful playing the dead's music. It's become younger people are influenced by the dead's music. I mean, I don't think could have ever imagined that the influence would be so actually stronger than ever, you know, at this point in time. So I find it, I find it very fascinating, the whole, the whole thing, but you know, but I, you know, I've just always been really, really into them uh, musically. And, you know, I mean, it's funny you say people love to talk about the dead. I mean, I don't get the chance to talk about them much, but, you could you can really just go on and I could go on all day probably awesome. and talk about it. You you touched on the thing about people not, you know, the jazzers and all that. I had Jeff Comenti on a while back, you know, and he was he grew up in that San Francisco jazz scene and he's like, All the jazzers out there said, Oh, don't listen to that shit, man. Don't don't just stay away from it. You're not gonna And then he hears it because he's gonna start playing with them and he's like, What right. the f- why did they tell me to stay away from this stuff? Yeah. You know, so you're what you're talking about with the the attitudes towards it from from different camps is is definitely true it's fascinating you know um then so you left when you left dallas you went to berkeley for a while i did i did a year at berkeley um, doing the jazz thing everything i was i was a strange guy up there because i was like people referred to me as like sort of like the deadhead who you would who because i was i was wearing tie-dyes and shit you know long hair and i was sort of like this dude that People always said, man, I saw you like at Berkeley, you'd have your classes during the day and your ensembles, whatever. And then at night from like six to 12, you could book out different two hour slots in the different rehearsal rooms. And there were like 20 of them. So a guy like me who was busy, I'd I'd be playing almost every night. People would say, hey, can you do this thing? Can you do that thing? 
so you know from six to eight i'd be playing with like a jazz straight ahead jazz group and then from like eight to ten i'd be playing with like a heavy metal band <laughs> and then and then at you know ten i might be doing like a fusion thing or a blues thing and and but i was also like heavily into the dead you know and like right. you know and, and I remember people always kind of found me to be like, wow, it's kind of weird, man. You're like into all this, you're, you're like into all this different stuff. And I, I've just always been into a lot of different kinds of music, you know. I mean, to this day, I've just always really genuinely enjoyed listening and playing to many different styles of music, you know. And I've always tried to keep an open mind and not be so like, this sucks or that sucks. Or I think right. We, I'm going to jump around a little bit then and, 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 and go to that question. Who are some of the... Uh, but the drummers that really got you off, that really inspired you coming up? Well, I mean, like early on, um, you know, it's funny. One, one of my very first uh, influences was, was Kiss. I was a massive Kiss fan, dude. First concert, man. Yeah, there you go. Okay. First With ACDC opening with Bon Scott. Holy shit. I didn't know that, though. I was in fourth, really, I was in fourth grade. Like eight, yeah, I was about to say, because I saw them. I finally saw them on the Dynasty tour. My parents took me. Yeah, me too. Uh, Friend's mom took me. And uh, little did I know at the time how fucked up they were. You, you know, you see the documentaries, you realize right. that, was, that yeah. was the end. That's my first game, yeah, first concert, man. That's great. I mean, you know, so, and I, I still love Kiss. Like, I really love Kiss. I think they're, I love their songs. I just saw that documentary the other night. I, I stand fully behind Kiss. <laughs> I'm a member and, of the Army, man. Yeah. So, so that was like, so that was like one of the first sort of like bands I got into really young, you know, but I mean, you know, from there it was like, you know, Zeppelin. I mean, I used to bond John Bonham, as far as drummers, yeah, like John Bonham was like, you know, one of my biggest heroes and influences. I used to play along the Zeppelin all the time. You know, I went through the rush phase where I had eight toms and played along the 2112 and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I loved, I loved ACDC, um, loved Van Halen. My first concert was actually a concert in Dallas called the Texas Jam, and it was at the Cotton Bowl every summer. And my dad took me and my brother, and Van Halen played on the bill. They just put out their second record, and it was just insane. They were so good, you know. And so that, so you know, Alex Van Halen, um, and then like you know, as I got a little older, I sort of, I sort of discovered fusion. Like I discovered Mahavishnu, and got into Billy Cobham, and I discovered. Uh, you know, Lenny White with Return to Forever. And then that sort of led me into more traditional jazz like Miles Davis and John Coltrane. So then I started to really get into Elvin Jones and Tony Williams. And then I got into, um, you know, I started to really get into like, you know, R&B and soul. And then, you know, Bernard Purdy became one of my very favorite drummers and, you know, biggest influences ever. And, you know, when I first moved to New York in 88, I studied with him for a year. Um, that this right, you know, around the same time the spin doctors were forming. And so he was, you know, I mean, you know, if I have to pinpoint like one of my very top, you know, if I had to name like the top five, I'd probably say influence, like probably say like in no order, but like Bernard Purdy, Steve Gadd, Tony Williams, Elvin Jones, and John Bonham. There you, you go, know. man. You, you and I are the same age. It goes on and on. The list goes on and on. You, you and I are the same age pretty much. And so you, a lot of the same things going on. Exactly. I had this, I had bought from my drum teacher probably when I was, a, finally got past the rudiment books and I was allowed to have a kit, right? So my teacher sold me this great, beautiful, black and yellow, striped, sparkled, sonar drum kit from the 60s. Little four piece, gorgeous, but I didn't know what I had at that age. And in seventh grade, 1980, 81, whatever, 
I, uh, I traded it in so I could get the eight concert Tom Neil Pert drum set. <laughs> yeah. You know, hey, man. And, and I've, then, made, I've made a few mistakes like that myself. Yeah. And then for years, like in my 20s, when I was in music school here, I was doing wedding gigs and, and a lot of casuals on tuxedo gigs, just wishing to God I still had that kit because it would have been just perfect for these gigs. Right. What You know, you make mistakes. You didn't know. I just wanted all those toms because it was the 80s and Neil Peart had them. Oh, yeah. And, and same boat, man. Um, had to go through it, you know. Let's, let's talk about, I'm, I'm jumping around, which is great because this is just, it's just flowing. So let's talk about Billy and Mickey for a minute. Um, yeah. Obviously, you were listening to a bunch of the dead. Oh, first, I want to go back. Did, did you see a bunch of shows after that once you got into them in Dallas? I did. So I, uh, I think the first show... I saw, if my memory serves me right, was me and my buddy, that same guy, Kenny, who turned me on to him, and another guy, Pete, drove to Red Rocks. They did three nights at Red Rocks. I think this was 1984. And we got the tickets like he used to do, you know, mail order, that dead mail order. We camped out like everybody did. And we saw them three nights at Red Rocks. And it was, it was awesome. You know, it was just great. Um, such a cool trip. And I remember they were fantastic. And um, and then I think I saw them again on that tour. And they, they didn't come to Texas too often then, but they played Austin. They played Manor Downs in Austin. And then they played the Houston Zoo. So we went to those two shows. And those were the only, those. so I saw like five shows when I was in high school. But then once I moved up to New York, you know, it was a lot easier to see. Or actually when I went to Berkeley, actually, because it was easy to see them because they right. played on the East Coast. So I started... You know, I saw them a lot, like in, in Worcester, Mass, and in Boston. And whenever they come to New York, I'd see them at the Garden or a giant stadium right at Nassau Coliseum. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I saw a good, a good amount of shows. And, in fact, I, gotta, I can't do this podcast and not tell this story. Um, one, of the, one of the shows at Nassau, I think this was around, like, 1993. And, you know, so the Spin Doctors, our record was popping at this point. And um, some friends went out to the show and then we drove, somebody had a car, we drove back into the city and somebody knew somebody, you know, and they were like, Hey, we're going to go back to the hotel where the dead are staying in Manhattan and have a drink at the bar. Cause you know, we, I don't know whether we were invited. I don't know what happened, but anyway, we ended up at the bar at some hotel in Midtown where the dead were staying. And so we walk in and you know, Jerry's sitting there in the chair on his table Everybody's around him, and and somebody's like, "Hey, come on, let me let me introduce you to Jerry." You know, and again, our band was like really we were we were happening at this point. So you know, it's like you know, so I I I I go over to Jerry. The guy's like, "Hey, this is Aaron." You know, he plays drums in the Spin Doctors, and Jerry couldn't have been cooler. Oh, hey man, I, I love you guys. I love your drumming. And I was just like, "Holy fuck!" Wait, wait a minute, you know, sit down, man. Come on, let's let's chat, have a drink, and I'm like. Okay, cool. You know, and we sat there and we talked for two hours. Oh, and it was one of those things where like you're sitting there and I'm like, you know, I'm being cool. I mean, I can deal with it. And he's, he was so cool and so humble and such a nice guy and so easy to talk to. I was relaxed. He made me feel relaxed. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm thinking like, holy shit, this is Garcia, man. This is like a dream come true. I'm sitting there hanging out with Jerry Garcia. He actually knows who I am. You know, it's like bizarre. And, you know, there's all these people sort of huddled, huddled around just sort of listening and, you know, uh, it was just great, man. He was just couldn't have been cooler. We talked about music and he was asking about the band. He was telling me funny stories about the dead, you know, and and even like, you know, like 
you know how it is. You're, you've been in a band for a long time. It's like you love your band. Everything's great. But almost any time if you hang out and have a drink with somebody who's in a band, and I've been in this situation a lot with some of my heroes, ultimately they start like kind of ragging on their band. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or saying, not ragging, but sometimes it's all out rag. And sometimes it's just sort of like you get some funny stories. And even Garcia was like, he was, he didn't go too far, but he was kind of like talking about how, you know, God forbid you could ever make a suggestion to somebody what to play or, you know, it was just really funny, you know? And I remember asking him, he was asking about our band and I was saying how, you know, we, we always like to mix up our sets. You know, we've, from the beginning, we've always done a different set every night, but here we are in this weird situation because, you know, we, you know, our, our fan base was kind of like a lot like, you know, the dead's fan base, these sort of, deadhead type, you know, real music lovers. And now all of a sudden we have like these big hit singles. And so playing these big, big sheds and it's not all just hippies anymore. It's sort of like this divided crowd and we're, we're struggling with like how to please everybody. But we, if we don't play two princes or little miss, you know, people are going to be pissed off. I remember he just looked at me. He was like, what just, why don't you just not play it one night see what happens? (laughs) You know, it was great. And I was like, well, that's easy for you to say, you know, right. (laughs) <laughs> they weren't being driven by radio play like you were at that point. Yeah. You know, you but it was to. it was such an awesome like a moment for me. You know, I remember I was, so great. I was just, to this day. I mean, it's like one of the one of the coolest like you know hang out with the hero moment I had. That's awesome, man. Good for you. I'm happy to hear you got that that opportunity. Uh, let's talk about them. Let's talk about Billy and Mickey. You know what's there? They're there's so much cool shit about what they do, you know, the double drumming and the Grateful Dead, but I want to really know what really appealed to you or still appeals to you about Billy and Mickey as, as a drumming tandem or, or separate either way. I mean, it's interesting. I think they're, again, just like the dead, they really created their own voice. I mean, it's a certain style of playing. I mean, you know, and I'm really, a, I'm very much a pocket drummer, you know, like I'm very much into like deep pocket and, really solid time and everything being like dead on, you know, right. That's not the dead. Let's be honest. I mean, they're, they're loosey goosey, but they do it in a way that just is so cool. And it's almost like the drumming kind of reminds me of rain. It almost feels like there's like, there's these like raindrops flying around, you know, I always sort of heard it that way. And, and, it, and, you know, you know, you got, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but you know, it's like Billy is obviously more of the sort of holding down the groove guy. And, and Mickey's always been this guy that, sort of dances around and is tribal with the toms. And, um, and you know, obviously you listen to their playing from going back from early on until later. It, it developed and it changed a lot. And I really like different periods of their playing a lot too, you know, um, in different ways. And I also really love the period where it was just Billy. You know, I yeah. love the, like the 70, you know, 74. I think one of the tapes that I had that was one of my favorites I don't know if it's just because I had it and listened to it so, so much, or it may be kind of well-known. You would probably know is Palace to Sane 74. Mm-hmm. Is that ring a bell? And I think there's like a plane in the band on it. And, uh, but I really remember really, really enjoying that period just in a different way with just, with just Billy, you know? Yeah, for sure. But they're, they're great. I mean, they, you know, they, they just do this really cool, unique thing that nobody else did, you know, totally different than like say the Allman brothers. You know, the way they played. It's very different. Right. Never doing the same thing at the same time ever. Um, it just it just made sense. It's just sort of like the you know, the whole Grateful Dead, just the way they all do that. I mean, nobody plays like Phil Lesh. Right. Nobody plays like anybody in that band. It's just such a unique, bizarre uh chemistry that just created this 
totally unique sound. You know, it's 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 a it's a trip. It is. And I like, you know, and as it, as it developed in the MIDI and the electronics gets incorporated into it, yeah, all that extra percussion, you know, and, and that, you know, Billy, like you, I, I assumed and I'm correctly because of your jazz background, you know, Billy would be something you might gravitate to a little bit more than Mickey. Um, But even as time went on, you know, Billy started hitting all that stuff too. You know, he got the MIDI rig and right. He, and that was kind of by, you were talking about stories where, eventually they come back to ragging on your own band yeah um, i was sitting in a hotel with and billy was there and i said to him this was in in 89 or so just same thing in a hotel bar outside of at foxborough the night of the foxborough show okay. and it must be great to get up there and just get to have freedom and a drum solo all night like that every night and yeah if you can handle mickey and all his fucking toys <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know? But he embraced all that shit, you know, and right. now, my God, he's all over it these days. Yeah, um, yeah totally. <laughs> you know, I think, when, you know, it's like anything when you're in the middle of it, man, it doesn't matter how successful you are, or how amazing it, you think you have it. I mean, it's real easy to, you know, there's always going to be some negative or some sort of dark side or something that bugs you. And ultimately, I think as you, as time goes on, you know, you just really appreciate what you have. So I'm yeah. sure, sort of, and then it's taken away from you. I mean, when Garcia died and I'm sure those guys are so happy to be doing what they're doing again on this level and they're embracing it. And, you know, but I can, I can relate. I mean, I, I feel the same way about the spin doctors. I mean, you know, we went through times where we weren't really active or we hated each other or whatever. And, you know, here we are, we've been a band now for, you know, over 30 years. I mean, you know, you, you start to let the little thing, the little things just don't bug you as much anymore. And even some of the musical things that might drive you crazy, you sort of learn to embrace, you know, mm-hmm. relax. Okay, man, just, it's not that big of a deal. And then you get to the <laughs> point. Now you get to look out at the crowd and just be so happy. You get to do this and they get to enjoy it Yeah, and, and not take it for granted, you know, and it's the little, yeah, you're right. The little things. But it's don't very matter. common. I can, I can totally imagine, you know, him saying something like that. It's just yeah. like, but he ended up I don't think there's anybody that doesn't feel that way about their band in some way, some some right. level of frustration. Of course, at some point, you know. After so after after you left uh, Berkeley, you go you go to you go to New York, and that's when you go to the New School, right? And well, I actually went back to Dallas for one year in between. No, you did, and I had a great year there. I just played played gigs and played in bands, and then I moved up to New York City in '88. And and when you're at the New School, you you and the other guys in the dock and the spins meet. And yep. are they, obviously this is, I was outside of the dead. Is this kind of your first indoctrination into the jam band world? And are they, are they all into the dead at that time? Well, it's funny. Me and Chris were really into the dead. Chris, the singer is, is also really into the dead. Mark had never heard of the Grateful Dead. Mark, our bass player. Today's his birthday, never, by the way. I saw that in the yeah, newspaper yeah, this right. morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. That's right. Yeah, I already wished him a happy birthday earlier. Good deal. But, uh, you know, Mark had never heard of the dead or he never, I mean, he, he was a funk bass player from the Bronx. He didn't care about rock and roll. He didn't know. I mean, he knew it existed, but he didn't know the difference between Led Zeppelin and the who or the Beatles or the dead, or he just thought that was all like white music. <laughs> you know, what I mean? so, He's like, fuck that shit. You know? So, but uh, you know, and Eric, uh, Eric liked the dead, but he wasn't really a deadhead. I think he probably likes the dead more now than he did then. He was always sort of more of like a, blues guy, rock guy. Um, but it was, a, it was sort of the perfect balance because 
you know, I, it's not like we were all these deadheads. So it, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't have the ability to just sort of totally go out there like that. We had, there was sort of, it was just sort of a, a good amount of, 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 uh, Whatever our different inf- our influences, you know, ended up making a, a cool sound. But then, you know, it just so happened that our this we we ended up lumped into this like blues traveler were good friends of ours. Um, they also went to the new school. Chris grew up with those guys in Princeton, New Jersey. They were already established, or they'd been a band a few years already, so they were already playing a lot of the places that we ended up playing in New York City. So. You know, we just sort of lumped into that and started playing with them. And then, you know, very shortly after, very soon from there, the scenes sort of merged and, you know, Blues Travel and Spin Doctors became this sort of like brother band. And you know, we had like the same fans, basically, you know what I mean? And um, and it was a real sort of deadhead, hippie crowd who really loved hearing bands stretch out and play different sets and different songs, which is what we did. Um and it just sort of, you know, we just sort of fell into that scene. It wasn't like we kind of tried to do that or or we were trying to sort of trying to get like a deadhead crowd. It just it just organically happened that way, you know. Right. And and, and that's when so it's it's like you and, and Blues Traveler and a bunch of other bands coming up at the wetlands and all right. those other places around there. Um, I mean, those days in the wetlands really started to help define the modern jam band scene. Um, what, what, was, was the dead a prevalent theme throughout these bands and this whole scene in New York and the wetlands at the time? I mean, it was, I mean, there were, people were into the dead. Um, but again, it wasn't like we were, we were trying to be the dead or, or we were, um, it I think it was just, there was a lot of the same spirit there, like in the music that we weren't trying to like these bands like fish and us and blues traveler. We weren't, we weren't out there trying to get a record deal. Like, we, like a lot of the band's goals was sort of like, let's get a record deal. Let's have a hit. Let's, you know, get on the radio. That wasn't our goal at all. All these bands goal was to like write songs, play gigs and make a living. And so it was really just like this sort of real organic thing that happened. And, um, and people, you know, dug it. And cause if you, I mean, if you think about like fish, and Blues Traveler and Spin Doctors. Let's just take those three bands as an example. We all sound completely different from each other, really. Right, right. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not like there, there's some common thread. I think our attitudes and our goals were the same, but we weren't really set out. We weren't setting out for that. And like, you know, as far as like the, with us, we've always been as much into sort of songwriting as we were into jamming and stretching out. And, um, you know, the whole like having a hit record thing really was a fluke. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it really honestly wasn't our goal at all. Right. Our goal was our goal was just to make a living and write wow. good songs. And then and and we ended up because of the scene that was that happened in the fan base, it sort of became this undeniable thing around New York City. And before you knew it, we had record companies, you know, wanting to sign us. And uh we signed with Epic and we signed a management deal and we, and we went in the studio and made a pocket full of kryptonite. And we just tried to like, we had a lot of material because we've been playing for about, you know, three years at that point when we made that record, which we made in 1991. And, you know, we had over 50 songs and songs that we've played that we'd played hundreds of times because we had already done like, you know, we used to play 200 shows a year, if not more. All, all that time in New York with all those groups kind of, it really led to a milestone moment in the jam band world. And that, that's, I'm talking about the Horde Tour in 92. 
Yeah. So it's, it's you guys and, and Colonel Bruce and the aquarium rescue unit and then widespread panic and blues traveler and fish. I mean, I remember seeing all that. And I mean, it's even, it's been documented so many places. That's really the beginning of the modern day jam band and festival scene. Yeah. Did, did you guys just the spins, all you guys, did you guys have any idea that you were creating something new here and the dead were really the impetus to make that happen? Well, I mean, we, we, we all kind of even, I mean, not to, Look, I love Popper. He's a good friend. And, and he owns the Tord and all that. But we all, honestly, we all came up with that idea. That was a real like group effort. Um, we had a meeting where different pe- members of all the different bands, Spin Doctors, Fish, Blues Traveler, Aquarium Rescue Unit, and um, Widespread Panic all showed up. We discussed the whole idea. We talked about going to different areas having different bands depending on who sort of did better in different areas. We would figure out the lineup of the bill according to that. And the whole idea was we were, we were all, all our, we were all sort of doing the same thing. We we're all out on the circuit playing gigs. We all had a similar approach of long shows, stretching out. Um, definitely. Yeah. That grateful dead vibe, you know, for sure. Right. Um, and the idea was that if we all joined forces, we could play bigger venues and try to take help, help each other take it to the next level. And that's exactly what we did. And, the, you know, the first horde, um, which was all those bands I named, as well as Bella Fleck was on some of them. Right, right, right. Um, and uh, it was great. And it was, I think it was about eight shows or so, you know, and it was just, but we were playing these, like, you know, amp- we were selling out these amphitheaters that at the time nobody could do on their own, you know. Um, and it was just, it was just great. And everybody sat in with each other and the camaraderie was great. And all the bands sounded amazing. Everybody was in a you know really creative moment. And um, it's funny because right when that tour happened, our record started to take off. Like in the middle of that tour, right. Little Miss started getting played on MTV and the radio. So all of a sudden, like we were like a band with a hit, you know, on the Horde tour. It was interesting, um, but it was great, you know, and. Um, it was it was a it was a it was a great great tour and it, nobody you know it's funny how people talk about it to this day it's it's cool you know uh, it, but it definitely was a really cool moment in time you know it it was I mean it it you know the the, the jam band festival kind of sort of didn't exist for a long time after the sixties you know you had you had super jams with the hard rock bands and all that stuff in in the seventies right. and eighties but the whole jam band thing I mean the horde festival was so important in making that happen how many years did you guys do that. We only did it that one year. 92 was it? Now, what happened was the second year, our record blew up so big right. that uh, we decided to go out and do our own tour. So you weren't on it after that, but it continued. Because yeah, it continued for quite a while. I remember seeing it here in St. Louis in 93. I went and saw yeah. it. I remember because I had a broken ankle. I was on crutches. And I remember being at that tour. Oh, wow. That was probably that. the second year. That yeah, that was 93. 93 for it sure. definitely went on. It went on, I think, until like, I don't know, 98 or 99. I mean, they, you know, Popper ran the show and he kept it going for, for quite a while. And they did great. I mean, it became, it became one of the biggest, it became one of the biggest package tours. I mean, it was like as big as Lollapalooza by the mid 90s. I think Mo was on it for a little while. Um, yeah, I mean, it, everybody did it. It, it yeah. became a, it, it, it was great. It became a little more like, a, just sort of like a, like, like that was the great thing about the first Horde tour. It was really like, we really had a, there was a real reason why we were doing it. We were all these bands that had a, shared a common vision and we weren't, we weren't, it wasn't about 
I mean, it wasn't about the money at all or anything like that. I mean, but you know, like everything, it becomes a successful thing and it's, it gets a little more commercialized, which is, which is fine. I get it. Right. But I think as the nineties, as the nineties went on, there wasn't that much of a difference between the horde or, or Lollapalooza. I mean, it just became like, let's get some, maybe it still leaned a little bit towards the jam scene, but it I was, think it was still introducing people like, you know, I mean, at that point I'm still like a local musician and I'm going to see those things. And it's introducing me to some of the jam bands that are out there for the first time, you know, they're yeah. still getting their, I mean, like I remember seeing Mo who I didn't know at that right. time, you know, yeah. you've also spent, at least 10 years i don't know the exact time a long time anyway touring with joan osborne right yeah well um, she's great i mean i know her from way back because she was also on the same circuit in new york city that spin doctors and blues traveler on she was playing the nightingale and the wetlands and the mondo connie and the mondo perso so we all go way back and um so i've had a she's been a friend for a long time and uh yeah but i've been playing in her band and I've done her last four records for like the last decade. So she's great. So during her. some of that time, or even, I guess a little bit before that as well, because that's what 20 years ago. Oh, God, time goes fast. You know, she's, she spent time in the dead camp playing with the dead and then with Phil yeah. and friends and all that stuff over the years. Um, when, when you're on stage with Joan, does, does the dead, and I, I must admit, I've never seen you and Joan together. Um, does the dead influence ever to see, seep into what you guys are doing on stage? I mean, a little bit. We do. Um, what's the dead tune she does? Um, oh God, I'm I'm just spacing out right now. I have no idea. She does, she does do one. There's one dead song she does. Um, but I mean, you know, it's I, I wouldn't say like. I mean, you know, she definitely has like a little bit of that crowd because of her stint with the dead. You see people come out and they'll call out like you know people scream out like a dead song or something. Um, you know, but. But she's real open. Like, I mean, her music also, it, it's coming from such a cool place. I mean, obviously it's rooted in like, there's a lot of R&B and soul in her music, but there's also like a lot of Americana and a lot of her songwriting. Yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of room to stretch out. I mean, she definitely likes to stretch out live, you know? So like there's certainly when we play a, a, a show, I mean, it's depending on the, on the set, there's, a, there's always some songs where there's a lot of room and she's really open to, to that so it, it's a it's a from like a being playing in her band point of view it's a it's a really fun gig because it's not like there's a ton of restraint i mean obviously you got to be on your game and you got to count off the tempos right and you got to certain, certain songs that are meant to be played a certain way you know every night like and you know most bands have songs like that but, but there's also a lot of uh a lot of room to to stretch out and she and she enjoys that so awesome man well listen before i let you go i do this with every one of my guests uh quick lightning round just i'm gonna throw them out there you throw them back at me all right uh first grateful dead show i know you already mentioned it but let's do it again first show red rocks 1984 favorite show <sighs> red rocks 84 <laughs> studio recordings are live well, you know, I it, it's it, I, I probably have to go with live, but I got to say I'm also somebody that really loves the Dead records. I lo yeah. I love their records, like all of them, even like records that people don't like. You know, I really like. You know, like. Uh, but what one of my favorite things that the Dead ever did is a record, which is uh, Blues for Allah. Yeah, man, for sure. You know, I, I, it's like if I had to sort of say one thing, my favorite thing the Grateful Dead have ever done, it would be Blues for Allah, the record. That's great because my next question was favorite dead album. Blues uh, for all. 
All right. Favorite non-Grateful Dead album? Any genre? Just that one album that just... Mm. Oh, uh, shit. Wow, man. That's, That's everyone's least favorite question because it's hard to come up with one. A lot of things going through my head right now. <laughs> Jesus. I'm going to go with... Uh, nah, you know what? I, I think I'll, I'm pretty confident in A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. Excellent. That's actually come up. That's You're not the first person to answer with that. That's oh, it's awesome. A re- it's a really good record. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> first job. I mean, there's a, there's about 10 that I could say that would, I'm sure that you've heard a million times. I mean, let's face it. I mean, the best records ever, there's, you know, there's certain records that are just so good that they're going to, yep. a lot of people are going to cite them because they're hundred percent, man. Uh, <laughs> first, first job. Uh, carry up. Actually, no filing cabinet, filing at my dad's doctor's office. Okay. Favorite color. Uh, brown. Favorite venue to play? Red Rocks. That's the standard answer, man. It's just, <laughs> it's that good. I mean, it's, nobody thinks about it. They just, is there really a better venue? I mean, no, there really isn't. There really isn't. Um, best city for a day off? Uh, um, that's a tough one, man. I'm going to go with uh, San Francisco. All right. Uh, first car. A VW bus. Current car. Porsche Macon. Book you are reading. Uh, nothing right now. Magazine subscriptions. None. And I mean, I look at everything online, so you know. Right, right. And <laughs> this one I had to change lately because the pandemic. We're coming out of it, you know. Um, besides playing, what are you most excited to have back in your life as we come out of the pandemic? Uh, you know, it's just just to hang out with friends again, man, just to get back over to friends' houses and have dinner and, and hang out, go to re- go into a restaurant without yeah. a mask inside. Hugs, yeah. man, yeah. just being able to see a friend and give him a hug. Just, yeah. it's, it's all so great. Well, Aaron, I, I mean, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the hell out of this conversation. And now I'm glad you're busy and back on the road and working. Be careful, stay safe, have a blast. And, you too, and man. Thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure talking to you, and I hope to see you out there again soon, my friend. Right on. That's Aaron Comas, drummer from the Spin Doctors, Joan Osborne, his solo projects, and so much more. Take care. Thanks a lot, buddy. What a nice guy. That was a fun, fun conversation. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode, and I'd like to thank Aaron Comas, Josh Daniel, and Rick Turner for being here. I'd also like to thank my sponsors. Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio, The Clean Store, The Authenticity Academy, and Grateful Sweats. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers some great bonus content every week, or you can show your love with a one-time contribution, and please remember that a portion of your contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything related to the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep this uh, show rolling along. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. I will be back again in two weeks with episode number 18. We just keep chugging along here. I will feature guitarist and pedal steel player Barry Sless. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. It's getting a little dicey out there again, and we really need to keep things heading in the right direction. So please take care of yourselves and everyone around you. 
thanks for being here. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.